Welcome to this episode of DQ Chats, brought to you by Drama Queensland. My name is Stephanie Tudor and I'm the President of Drama Queensland. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded on, the Turrbal and Yagara people, and pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. I wish to thank them for their long and rich history of storytelling and acknowledge them as first artists, the first storytellers and the first creators of culture on this land. Welcome to this episode of DQ Chats. I am Sam Neal, and I'm joined by Stephanie Tudor and our wonderful special guest, Lucas Stibbard. Lucas is a theatre and performance maker who has worked across Australia and internationally as an actor, a performer, a puppeteer, director, facilitator, writer and dramaturg, who is probably best known for his work Boy Girl Wall that he performed in, produced, co-wrote and co-devised with The Escapists. We are... Lucky to have Boygo World appearing again as I prescribe text for our 2022 drama external exam and fortunate enough to have Lucas here with us on this episode. So welcome, Lucas. Oh, thank you. Morning. Morning. Welcome. Eight o'clock in the morning. How are you feeling? Um, I am alive. <laughs> That's all we could ask for. Yeah, I am I'm distinctly <laughs> conscious. Uh, I'm going with the, you know, baseline presets here we'll work up from there so we'll, we'll start with think and am and then move slowly up into the higher functioning and registers of the world well i mean listening to that list that kind of makes me exhausted just even thinking about it i've been very fortunate um to have had the opportunity to have had people trust me to do a, a large number of very strange and wonderful things for a living for over 20 years mm. and uh, across that time being very fortunate to be able to run at all of them and, and have a, have a crack at things. Um, I think, you know, partially it's, it's probably white male privilege in terms of having opportunities <laughs> handed to me, but I think, uh, you know, the other side to that is just being fortunate enough to actually go, I'd really like to try that. And, um, by and large, one thing leading to another people going, well, if you can do that, have a go at this and see what you can do. And, you know, sometimes I've fallen on my face and sometimes I've been really lucky and um, been able to continue doing it. Yeah, well, Boy Girl World definitely didn't fall on its face. Uh, well, yeah, kind of, a couple of times. Uh, it, um, look, the, the first time uh, after we developed it up, um, and we'll go into that later on, but the um, when we first uh, performed it, the, the first year we did it, I managed the preview to approximately six or seven people and then the opening night at the old Metro, at the old Subana. And after opening night, uh, I got really ill and went to the hospital and cancelled the first season. Uh-huh. And oh, then, wow. yeah, and then we took it to Adelaide to the festival the next year and I managed, I think, eight out of 14 shows because I lost my voice and got laryngitis. <gasps> <gasps> And then later on, a few years later, during the Le Bois seasons, uh, we got invited to do the show twice in one year. And the second time we did it, um, I ended up having a mild nervous breakdown and cancelled the last two shows of the season. So, yeah, I mean, it, it continues to be a, a movable feast of success and, you know, <laughs> and an occasional just, you know, falling flat on my face still. Well, you know, I think I think perseverance to have kept it going and to... To get it to where it has been. 
perseverance, bloody-minded stupidity. Yeah. <laughs> but also the um, the brilliance of having it recorded so it can um, live on in our classrooms. That was mm. that was literally the uh, uh, after I'd gotten out of hospital the first time after that first season over that summer we decided to because I'd always wanted to make sure that it was accessible uh, and available and something uh, that w was able to be shared in more than one way and also I'm, I'm very big on um, kind of drama and theatre and education and, and the opportunities that we have um, as makers and performers to actually continue to proselytise because the reason that we still have, you know, 2,200, 2,400 years after, you know, the invention of what we call Western drama, the fact that we still have it is because drama is really good at talking about itself and proselytizing. Mm. Um, and we're very fortunate to still have that. So um, the responsibility of drama to actually um, kind of go out there and uh, and be a, a kind of an advocate for itself, I think, is really important. So making sure that it's as accessible as possible was always a thing. And Katie Stewart, who at the time um, was um, big at DQ and doing stuff, uh, was not only a mate, but somebody who I'd, I'd wanted to work with since I met her. And so getting her on board to help develop it up so that we could actually make a version of the show that was mm. available to schools, that was accessible to schools, that um, was cleaner than the live version that happened <laughs> at the time. Um, and, and that was a, a a way that you could kind of build the, I guess like a, a the show is intended to be a bit of a gateway drug for theatre um, by pretending to kind of be stand up comedy, mm. Um, mm. so that you've got that safe way in um, for people that might be like, well, I wouldn't go to the theatre, but I'd quite happily go and see Will Anderson talk for an hour. Yeah, uh, trying to kind of draw people over, going, it's the same thing. It's literally the same thing. Um, about wanting to actually get people to understand where that the sense of performativity and theatricality intersect uh, was really important to me. So yeah, the joy of being able to have that summer to go back and you know, film it again effectively. And what we did was we'd get up and work part of it. Uh, and then after we'd done it, Katie would say, don't say that, um, probably don't say that. And then, <laughs> <laughs> so we'd film it in sections and then cut it together with, uh, with the way that we actually then communicated that that version of it back in the space. Mm. You touched on a few things there that I um, really wanted to start off with today. And um, I thought we could start off by looking at this idea of inspiration. And can you can you speak about where this idea originated from and how you began to see this story for the stage? Uh, okay, so um, the original version of Boy Go War and it's, it's very, 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 like the, the er version of it, the proto version of it was a, uh, a couple of pages of uh, creative writing exercise that I did at university, which right. involved a boy and a girl and a wall in West End in a, a little apartment block that I imagine is somewhere near Mixed Nuts. And yeah. <laughs> it is a, um, it had uh, the Tuesday, the anthropomorphized Tuesday, the idea of mm. Tuesday as, as a kind of a, the Tuesday is a bit shit, but the, um, <laughs> the, it had that, it had a, a massive thunderstorm inside it. It had the crack in the wall, um, but it was just like a shorter version of that idea. Um, and from that, it sat in a drawer uh, in my house while I went and did other things for a good, I guess, probably nearly 10 years. And then... Wow. 
Um, we, the escapists, had actually just formed up Attack of the Attacking Attackers at that point, which was kind of our initial um, shot across the bows of what we were interested in in theatre, which was you know, theatricality, imagination, and the joy of play as a series mm-hmm. of concepts to explore. So on a on a kind of a uh, thematic and explorative level, we had those ideas floating above us as things that we knew that we wanted to hit and also kind of that we think that's what's true and right in the art that we make. Um, the opportunity came up because Attack of the, Attack of the Tech and Techers was a, a giant <laughs> and ridiculous boondoggle of a show with uh, it was a love love letter to puppetry and Rockus Tedford that actually talked about um, the war on terror and daddy issues. Um, so it was a big, strange, through ridiculous Rockus show. Tedford. Through Rockus Tedford, yeah. Um, the only show I know that actually has somebody uh, in a cheerleading costume jump into a fake puppetry-based Muppet swamp of no return to actually do an attack with tentacles to like a virgin. Um, but... <laughs> You know, I, I think it successfully commun- managed to communicate the ideas behind it. The um, What happened, though, was uh, around that time, it looked like it was going to get a, a nice big tour and we'd gone and pitched it and it got picked up and then the global financial crisis happened mm. and the entire tour just collapsed in on itself. Um, and uh, in a fit of peak, we turned around and we were like, well, fine, then we'll just make something that has a cast of no one and tours with nothing um, to <laughs> get, actually get it to happen. Um and then we were discussing what was going to be next and, and kind of partially being angry about not being able to make giant theatre with, you know, everything in it. Um, these limitations came into place around kind of the knowledge of something that we knew wanted to have a life. I'd also been watching Frank Woodley's uh, Possessed, which was his solo show mm. uh, that he performed. I was working at the, up until last year, actually, I for like, the good part of almost two decades I've been working at Brisbane Powerhouse as an usher um, when I wasn't doing, you know, kind of other theatre work. And in doing mm. so, I just constantly was being immersed in shows, which was wonderful. Mm. Um, and sometimes it was me going, I can do better than that. Uh, and sometimes it was me going, I will never be that good. And I think part of those, both of those opportunities was actually seeing these things and being inspired by them. And I really wanted to see uh, what I could do because Frank had done this remarkable thing we're taking the same idea, which was basically one person love story and seeing what you can do with it. And that just set off a bomb inside my head of going, I think I know a story that I could use to tell that story myself. Yeah. yeah. Um, Rifled it out of the bottom drawer. Yeah. And started speaking to Matt Ryan, the co-writer um, of, of this. And across many sushi lunches, uh, we sat around and batted backwards and forwards all the concepts behind it and started identifying where it comes from and, um, I started sharing some of those influences that had actually been underneath it, which were things like um, Bill Bryson's Short History of Nearly Everything, um, which is a, a remarkable book for people that love science but don't really get science in terms of the fact that it's actually about the narratives behind the people who actually made the discoveries as much mm. as it's about the discoveries themselves and the wonder of them. Yeah. Um, so I think that was, a, that was, a, that was a big pull from that and the fact that I loved it. Um, Work by uh, writers like Neil Gaiman, who I absolutely adore, um, and Terry Pratchett, uh, Douglas Adams. I'm very, very influenced by Douglas Adams, actually, in terms of um, the the omniscient narrator voice, which is something that comes with the original um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio play, has that very much that same style of voice to it. Um, so there was a there was a big grab bag of, of things that I'd been influenced by, consciously and subconsciously. It's interesting that it's one of those things that as the years go by and I, I re-explore 
um, moments of culture and things that I, I had actually uh, adored, I, I, I find more and more of them have little bits of what eventually became the agglutinative mass that is Boyko Wall inside it. Yeah. So Matt and I sat down and, and kind of uh, charted out what is the listing that is on the wall and that is in most of the teacher's notes that exist of various forms across the internet on Boga Wall, which is that, that famous list um, of like 24 or 25 yep. scenes. The, and what we did was kind of chart it out across the way that it was going to work like that. And then I was working for Bell Shakespeare at the time, touring with The Alchemist, playing a, a kind of a medium-sized comedy part, which meant that I got a good amount of time off stage every day. So what I would do is basically <laughs> I had my laptop set off backstage and I would, whenever I was not doing the show, uh, I would be sitting backstage writing and mm. I just had those those kind of big chapter titles, um, boy, girl, um, wall, her, you know, his boss, um, you know, her publisher, all of those things were there. And what I would do is actually just uh, look at them, make italicized notes above them as to kind of what the beats needed to be that existed inside them, and then just kind of word vomit my way into them. Um, before that process, though, we'd also had to write a, a treatment for what it would be, um, which is where the, 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 the other side of it, the performative conceptual side of it comes mm. from, the, the one person um, – as I like to put it, one dickhead with a piece of chalk. Um, that's kind of the whole idea of the way the show works. Um, came from an evening of writing out that that initial one-page treatment and kind of describing the beats of that story in its simplicity, but then also the fact that it's actually not just the way that it's uh, – it's not just the story, but it's the way that it's told, that it is this um, kind of imaginative leap version of trying to communicate something that's about one person – pretty much getting out the Crayola caddy um, of every single <laughs> theatrical kind of technique and idea that mm. they can use and throwing them all at the wall to see what sticks, um, which was which heavily influenced at the time just by my own love of uh, Brecht and then of kind of post-Brecht and um, what eventually became post-dramatic theatre and taking those two kind of areas and wanting to smoosh those together, but also just being obsessed with stand-up comedy and storytelling. So kind of bridging the gap from Ugg the Caveman telling stories all the way through to Ugg the Caveman telling stories, except that they've chosen to do it in a way that doesn't actually obey any kind of Aristotelian arc or anything <laughs> in between it. Mm. Um, so those kind of those kind of things all got pushed together to yeah. actually form up the beginning of the plan for what became the show. Um, but yeah, weird influences, tons of different kind of ins and outs. Um, I had always loved love stories as well. So the idea yeah. of actually wanting to, to make a rom-com that wasn't a rom-com was actually, I mean, taking literally the first bit of a rom-com, which is the meet cute and turning it yeah. into the entire story was also very intentional. Yeah. Yeah, and and it is, um, you know, a love story, but it is, you know, so much more. Um, and we're going to talk about them in a second, but I want to touch on the idea that you raised there about all the kind of different conventions and styles and um, everything that is, as you said, mashed into this play. Um, it's often described, and I'm I'm hesitant to say this because I saw your um, workshop at Nuts and Bolts and um, you talking about contemporary theatre, um, but, 
Oh, uh, which means you've actually discovered that basically the show is just the way that my mind works generally, which is a grab bag of weirdness followed by high speed comedy. So, <laughs> uh, but why do you think you know the, this play keeps getting classed as as a contemporary play, and oh. and what was did you? Um, I think I know the answer to this, but did you intentionally set out to make a contemporary piece of theatre, or did it just kind of happen? Um, okay. Um, the word contemporary itself is slippery and difficult. Um, we've discussed this and at that talk, I was actually mentioning the fact that I object physically and viscerally to the idea of the fact that under the current syllabus, we actually define, um, Uber Roy as part of the contemporary canon, despite it being invented in the 1800s, um, (laughs) which is just, you know, problematic in itself. I, I think the word contemporary is a dangerous and slippery one to use in the same way that the idea of actually attaching ourselves to the modernist and postmodernists and post-postmodernists is difficult because they only work in reference to each other. Mm. What's happening here is that contemporary is only contemporary to the frame that we use it in. Um, so, yeah, my play is contemporary only in the fact that it's now, but the now yes. that it's in is actually already effectively, well, I was at uni oh, 20 years ago, more than that. Oh, that's depressing. And then <laughs> on top of that, um, the show itself is over 10 years old now. In fact, yeah. it, it, it turns 13 next year and actually becomes a teenager. a teenager yeah it's start gonna, slamming doors and yeah, being moody you. yeah it is it's <laughs> gonna be you, you laugh now i mean it was always troublesome but i think it really is gonna you know i'm gonna find it smoking and hanging out with the wrong people very soon so <laughs> you know, being, being like fine um i don't know we'll see what happens hopefully you know it'll hopefully it'll be one of those quiet calm teenagers that doesn't exist so you know <laughs> um the uh, i don't know it's I I intentionally set out to make the thing that interested me and that interested people who I, th- I thought, would, which I think is, you know, the best that you can ever do. I, I think in some ways art, like all communication, is your effort to actually articulate your experience of the world and then mm. hope that other people see that too so that you're not as alone and crazy as you think you are. So I think part of it was just that. Um, uh, you know, if this is all about the fact that this is probably one thing experiencing itself um subjectively and that we are that you know subjective little edge to what's going on and that we just spend the entire time reporting back to every other part of that subjective edge the way we're experiencing it then maybe that's but that if that's the way we're thinking um and if that's what it is that we're just trying to actually communicate it to the best of our ability using everything that we have within us to actually talk about our experience of this bizarre and chaotic thing that is existence then we just use the stuff that we've got and the touchstones that we've got to actually draw to it. Um, so I think partially it was that. I think it was also just I wanted to make the theatre that I wanted to see because I wasn't seeing the theatre that I wanted to see anywhere. Mm. And that was about things like opportunities to actually talk about, you know, the bridging into stand-up because I, I love stand-up and I think it's a, a remarkable thing when it's done well and it's not just jokes about shoelaces, you know, what's with shoelaces? <laughs> They're not made of lace. You know, it's you know, really bad stand-up. Good comedy. Uh, yeah, you know, it, airline food, it's really tiny, all of that shit that, you know, is awful. But I think when it's done well, it's a really interesting, medium because it is uh, you know I, like I mentioned before and my, my my going theory is to the way performance starts is you know Ugg comes back to the cave um, after a, a day and actually tries to communicate to other Ugg what happened and then starts explaining it and then starts acting it out and being the other people and suddenly you've actually got the beginnings of storytelling mm. um, 
just slightly before the invention of barbecue where Ugg eventually throws some mammoth onto a fire and they discover that it's delicious after you've caramelized it. But the idea being that these things are, uh, you know, have always been and will always be, but that we just use the versions of them that we want to see and that we want to use was, I think, really important to me as we got into the way this thing happened. Mm. Um, as for it being contemporary, I mean, it's interesting. There's, there are some fascinating papers up online from undergrads and stuff talking about and being forced to write about the difference between it being um, a contemporary play or a post-dramatic play and, mm. and the fact that, interestingly enough, in the same way that I think all artists are thieves and, and we all co-opt and take and, yeah. and it's what we want, not necessarily in the way that people intended them to use. I think in the same way that everybody co-opted Brecht and then went, I'll use all of the conventions, which he'd already stolen from Piscator and Meyerhold yeah. um, and his wife, who never gets credit. Um, but the, Always the it, way. I know, right? It's shocking. He was a terrible human being, despite being an amazing human being, like all of us. The, um, <laughs> the thing with um, people will listen to this podcast in years to come and go, oh, okay, yeah, no, he seems so nice. But the, um, <laughs> the, 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 the part behind this was um, – taking the ideas and the conventions, but not necessarily. It's also the thing that high school drama teachers might do occasionally, which is taking the, the conventions, but not necessarily the drive behind them. I mean, yes. my, my big thing with Brecht was always the fact that as much as it's about the Fulton's effect and the idea of wanting to actually, you know, do these things, it's not a checklist. You don't have to do them all. And also mm. most importantly, if you don't have a message behind it, it's not actually what he was talking about for the majority of his working life. Yeah. In the beginning of his life, he wasn't down with it at all. He was basically just a mad, bad, dangerous to know young man who was writing plays about evil kind of rock and roll sex gods. And then sometime <laughs> around about um, the, the the around about Thrippany Opera, he turned around and read Dust Capital and went, holy shit, I can use this, and totally co-opted all of those ideas and packed them into what he was doing to actually start mm. what became all of the stuff that was the teaching plays later. But then we see all of the conventions from Brecht and everybody has lived and stolen them, you know, in turn as they get stolen down the ages. But without the, I mean, the thing that made the Brecht stuff, Brecht was actually the Marxist stuff, um, which is the part that's really difficult to teach when you've got yeah. to actually teach political theatre because basically you need to teach modern history and philosophy at the same time yes. and economics if you want to get it right. Um, but trying to get people grounded in all of those ideas as opposed to just, well, you know, we'll do some placards and you can break the fourth wall and it's done. Um, so I, I was kind of doing the same thing. I was lifting the stuff that I'd read about and was interested in from across the way performance works, you know, around, um, you know, multimodal performance and, um, mm. well, you know, playing around. And I mean, it's not like projections a new thing. And quite frankly, you know, technology has been part of theatre since the Greeks invented you know, the crane to actually lower gods into things or bring on the wheelbarrow with dead bodies in it. It's always <laughs> been technology in theatre. Um, it's just that it's, and it, it's that hilarious thing where I think every generation goes and now we're using technology in theater and it's all new. And it's that thing you go, no, it's not, it's really not. It's always been there. Um, so, you know, everything new is old again, everything old is new again. It's, I, I had just taken all of the stuff that I was interested in and had bower birded it all together. So, uh, contemporary in that it is for now until now isn't now anymore and contemporary in that I'm kind of mashing things together, but I would actually make an argument that all theater has been in that definition of contemporary contemporary because it was of its time. And mm. it's so used the best versions of the things that came before it and bowed them together and smushed it. Like ancient Greek theater is literally ritual plus extra character acting 
with mm. stories that already existed and yeah. song and dance. Like, you know, that's that I could make an argument for that successfully and actually get it across the line. Um, particularly if I happen to have been standing around in Athens at the time too, saying it's certainly contemporary. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think um, I, I, I enjoy the premise, but reject the idea of contemporary yes. as a way to define theatre. I well, think it's the shortest version of that. I love that we keep referring to this as a contemporary play and it uses an overhead projector that I'm sure that most students in the classroom now are going, what is that? How is he using? What is, what it's happens so to that? Funny. I do love OHPs. I mean, that is partially my own obsession with that particular era. I love overhead projectors. I love all of the old tech um, and, and kind of trying to tell things. But also I wanted to tell a story that was accessible and that you could do, basically do it yourself. I wanted it to, in the, the, the Brechtian idea of, of trying to make it as, as uh, democratic as possible, as accessible as possible, I wanted to only use things that were accessible. And part of that was breaking it down into things that might also be kind of like um, accessible in a classroom. Uh, yeah. And to that kind of tournament of the minds level of going, what can you do with some chalk and... Uh, you know, the socks off your feet and an overhead projector to tell a story. Like how can you get there with what you've got um, yeah. in the basis of it so that it comes down to that really simple level, but then how sublime that can be and how transformative, given that, you know, if the whole thing is about making the gods real in the Western canon, which is the whole idea of going, oh, look, um, you know, we, we talk about Dionysus or Dionysus and then actually somebody steps forward and says, I am Dionysus, and they become present in that moment in yeah. what's going on. Um, and, you know, everything since then where we've taken it and declared what it is and you say what it is and then it becomes that thing for a moment. The magic of that idea of transformation, um, which I think politically is great because it says that the world doesn't have to be the way it is. It is always changeable and fungible, which I think mm. is an important part of what we do, that that is always present. Uh, in terms of the opportunities that we get when we're making it. That's kind of why I wanted to make it that way, to make it all about those things of going, how can we conjure up an entire world in a room that's got nothing in it? Mm. Well, you play over like 20 different characters, don't you? Yeah. I mean, well, act out. I mean, it's interesting, yeah. right? It, it, there's a a line there in in terms of the argument of how deep those characterizations are. Mm. Um, but I, I think that's also... You know, in Brecht, that comes back to, you know, justice and the idea of actually just the essential. It's just what you need to actually get the story across. And once mm. you've got it, you can move on. Um, I think the other side to that, too, though, is actually that it comes that I mean, it's that's literally what people do in stand up. And I think that's what I was trying to link together was this idea of acting out in stand up. Wow. where You put on a character and then drop it straight away is actually yeah. such a an interlinked part of the opportunities that we have in terms of play and storytelling. Mm. Um, it was also just. Um, I am constantly fascinated by the fact that we have this desperate need to tell stories. You know, we're talking about monkey that tells stories before you started recording. And I love that idea um, that comes from a, a group of scientists um, who kind of, I think it was in the seventies or eighties kind of turned around and, and went kind of, what is the difference? You know, what is the thing that makes us us and, you know, different mm. the chimpanzees and, um, outside of, for most of us, kind of like an appreciable lack of body hair, it is also this fact that we're great at being able to actually project forward and backwards and tell stories and, and have a level of empathy attached to that, which I think yeah. is grown by doing it. Mm. I guess this is a really great um, 
idea behind there's so many different stories that we see in the in the play and um, to, um jumping back to something that um, we spoke about before about the idea that um it's it's not it's not necessarily a love story but it is a story about love and yes. i really like that idea and um that concept so how how did that feed into the way that um the the of the narrative choice throughout the play um part of it was i mean i already knew that i had those beats which was basically two lonely people meet each other um, which is pretty much every kind of uh, rom-com that's ever been, except that the beats, we, we all know those beats, but then trying yeah. to subvert a play with those. Um, I also wanted to kind of subvert the way those usually work in that they actually have a very specific male or female gaze inside them uh, and yeah. try and do something that was kind of a little bit more equal. Interestingly enough, I still put the boy first, but it's because boy-girl wall sounds better than girl-boy wall, which was pretty much the only reason that that happened. <laughs> it's it's that weird thing that we do where there's a certain um, rule as to the organisation of lettering in the way that we mm. place things so that they feel natural to us inside English, um, uh, it's, which is funny because it's not actually written like that on the floor of the show either. It's actually um, boy, wall, girl because of the way you have to put the wall down the middle of the um, uh, space to put it out, yeah. which, is weird, which always freaked me out. Um, <laughs> the, the the way that it came about in terms of the rom-com stuff is I wanted to subvert rom-com beats um, uh, and, and play with those things. Like I said before, you know, basically just playing out the first kind of beats with the meet cute and then only getting that far. Um, I also really love, there's a, uh, a an incredibly, and you might have noticed that the way I speak is like this too, um, kind of divergent and circuitous uh, story called Tristram Shandy, um, which is... <laughs> about a, a man who attempts to tell the story of his life but only gets as far as his own birth because he keeps trying to actually give the context to everything as it's happening, Yeah, and, which I think is a hilarious idea. Um, also very much the way I tell stories, but also very much I think um, the way I feel about the way that we should understand things too is that, you know, it, like I said before, um, you know, with the idea of contemporary, it's all contextual. With the idea of um, being able to take any of this stuff, and, and uh, Brecht, if you don't have the context and the socio-political and historical context, you don't have the story. You've only got the idea of it and the simulacra at the top level. Yeah. You're not actually getting the depth. Yeah. And so I kind of wanted to play around with that as, as a kind of a, a hidden thematic of going, unless you get the context, you don't get the story. You only get the outer side of it. Um, around that too, we were playing with, I mean, I guess when I sat down to write, I knew that I wanted to write a love story, but I wanted to actually then subvert expectation as much as possible, which is why there's those declarations at the beginning of the show that it's not. What it really is, because what I'm doing is priming you by saying, like a magic trick, I'm telling you mm. there's nothing up my sleeve, there's nothing up my sleeve, there's nothing up my sleeve, and there's very definitely something there. And it's the same idea at the beginning of the show of going, I'd like you to spend two minutes thinking about love stories because everything I do from now on is then going to be seen through that lens. Mm, yeah. yeah. It's um, Dr. Sarah Winter, um, who is part of The Escapists and um, has this amazing series of ideas that I'm only vaguely kind of across myself in terms of her depth of understanding, which is why she's a world leader in the idea. Um, uh, ha has a very similar uh, kind of approach to the way uh, she makes installation and artwork um, where she primes her audience before they move into the kind of immersive mm. installations that she builds by actually asking them to have a, a small and meditative moment where she asks them questions and those questions will actually lead them to actually framing the work and their understanding of it behind the way that you start it, which I guess is why we did what we did with that. It's, it's intentionally um, 
while at the same time pretending that it's not doing it, which is what the whole story, the whole show is literally people going, um, don't see this thing, but intentionally by doing that, saying you're seeing this thing, it's you're the old thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's don't think of elephants, you know. Yeah. As soon as you, as soon as you don't, you do. So, um, it, it was, yeah, it's, it's really trickery in terms of that. And I just like romantic comedies. Like, I think When Harry Met Sally is an absolutely brilliant, if problematic, story. Um, yeah, they all are, I think, too, which was wanting to problematise something at the time. I think Manic Pixie Dream Girl had actually just become a, a, a larger concept in, um, in in kind of thinking in the Western canon at the time. So I wanted to take the idea of a character who is very definitely on the edge of being somebody who could end up having, you know, um, coloured hair. She and rides a bicycle named Penelope and kind of lives this blessed, weird, original life in a way that is actually... But the point is she's not the solution for a male protagonist's problems. She's actually a, a fully realised and hopefully rounded character of yeah. her own, with her own issues and problems that she's living through. And the fact that they intersect is actually supposed to be a, an equitable meeting rather than, you know, solving a problem for one person or the other. In that, you know, like I was saying, most rom-coms do have that balance of it's either, um, uh, you know, I'm just trying to think. I mean, Harry Met Sally is, is actually relatively balanced in that they're, they're both relatively terrible people in their own ways who meet in a full <laughs> way and they have to meet four or five times for that to happen. Whereas, mm. you know, a lot of them, I'm thinking of like, um, what's that stupid, um, uh, like the um, 50 wedding dresses or whatever it is about the person who, you know. 27 always, dresses. 27 dresses, always the bridesmaid. Bridesmaid, never the bride. Um, which is, you know, basically taking literally a phrase and turning it into a thing about going, oh, if only she could just meet the right person. Um, I mean, I, I really liked My Best Friend's Wedding in that it takes and subverts a whole lot mm. of the tropes as well um, because of the fact that, you know, she doesn't get the person. She ends up hanging out with her gay best friend. Um, it's actually not really a romantic comedy in that the, she's, she realises she's a horrible person for doing what she's doing by the end of it and has to back down, yeah. which I think is great in that, a lot of the time, the behaviours that you see in these um, don't enforce healthy things. You know, um, you know, dumping the person you're with and running away with somebody else is not a responsible <laughs> way to end a relationship. Uh, slowly white anting somebody else to actually get the person that you like is a terrible thing to do. Uh, uh, you know, um, turning up at somebody's door, a, 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 you know, unannounced and uninvited repeatedly um, to show that you like them is actually stalking behaviour. Like, you know. Yes. It's important that we spend time actually <laughs> deconstructing this shit before we end up with another generation of people that believe in, you know, these toxic ideas. Yeah. So I, I yeah. kind of wanted to play around with that. And I think it comes back to that idea that you said before about providing context and providing backstory to your characters because mm. you spend so much time doing that and we find out kind of how they ended up at this moment. Mm. You know, you don't get swept away so much in the love but you get swept away in them and their stories um and their background and yeah. Yet again, why they I think end up where they are partially it's break we're actually looking at the why's behind things not um mm. yeah, we're, yeah how did we get to this why is this like this mm. how could it be different which i think is much more important than you know the other format of that which is you know isn't this wonderful hilarious funny sad um you know I guess it's just like this. It's that thing of going, no, it's like this because of these things. You know, we are entirely a construct and because we're a construct, we can change, which I think is so important and so interesting. And 
I mean, really, it's one of those things where people always try and get themes out of this play, and I sit there going, oh, look, everything and nothing, kind of whatever you want, but I think, if anything, because it's theatre, and Nathan Sid Phillips says this wonderful thing about the fact that the best thing that theatre does is talk about itself, which I think is true. Mm. Um, I think, if anything, the self-reflexivity of the play is actually about transformation and the fact that these yeah. people, through what happens, change in the same way that the space changes by watching one dickhead run around in it for an hour. <laughs> and hopefully you're changed by watching that dickhead and having that um, the two-way communication that the show is as well in that it's very intentionally uh, a person talking to a group of people. You're not watching something from a cold and um, observatory level. Mm. You, despite the fact that it actually invites you to do that multiple times through it, and you, you know, you are effectively the alien at you know one billion twenty nine million seven hundred. Uh, you know, you are that far away uh, watching the show because you're in the audience and you're not the person doing it. But at the same time, I want you to be able to actually move between and oscillate between being subjective and objective to the experience the whole time as much as possible. Does that make sense? Well, so yeah, completely. And it's that idea of, I guess, for me, the, you know, direct address involving the audience. It's that idea of storytelling rather than watching a moment play out. It has that familiarity of of someone telling you a story and being like, this is my personal experience. And then it has that objective third party as well. And so you kind of get the story from multiple angles because, yeah. you know, when we all tell our stories, we're the, the hero or the victim of our own world. Yeah, we, we tend to assume different. that we are protagonists, which yeah. is hilarious because that means that there's, you know, how, how many billion protagonists? <laughs> which which basically just makes it like Grand Theft Auto at that point. Like, you know, it, when you well, play multiplayer, it's, you know, everybody out for themselves in a world in which everybody else is slightly less important, which I think is problematic. Well, mm. I love that there's a moment that the power box realises it's the protagonist of its own story. Yeah. Yeah, and and then realizes the immense responsibilities behind that, and yes. actually tries to do something with it. Um, uh, and in doing so, kind of you know, is probably the healthiest and most self actualized character in the entire play. In that they then actually choose, they choose sacrifice for 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 the greater of other people for themselves in that moment of realization. So, uh, yeah, well, I think they're probably the healthiest. <laughs> well, on that note, actually, I want to ask, there's a lot of characters or ideas in Boy Go All about, you know, pressures and stresses and um, trying to break free and being trapped and emotional barriers. And were those things that you thought about or discussed while nah. making the work? Or um, do you think they've been layered on top? Or oh, look, do you really think the power box is trying to break free? I, look, um, all of the above, I think it's very useful if you happen to be teaching this in a context to a group of people reaching the end of 12 years worth of um, a very specific type of life and at a time in their <laughs> life which is also incredibly rebellious. It is actually certainly a great one that's got handles that you can pick up if you happen to be 16, 17. Um, I think it was also uh, I was in my late 20s at the time and going through another one of those threshold moments um, like that in terms of professionally and personally. Um, so I, I think I had also, um, when I originally wrote it, I was also going through another one of those threshold moments graduating from university, like it was in my third, second and second year and working out whether or not I was actually wanting to continue that I wrote the original story. And, wow. um, and then Matt and I, when we were writing it, had both actually um, 
come off the back of the experience of working for a very large um, national chain of bookstores together when we were both working in the same place um, without wanting to get into anything that could actually become slander or liable. Um, Mel is actually based on a boss that we both had at that work and um, <laughs> whose name is thankfully not Mel. Um, who came and saw the show and didn't get it at all, which was hilarious. Um, <laughs> it was just like, it's like, that's you, you dickhead. Uh, the, um, the whole thing in the show about having to read the weekly reports before you start work, which is in itself work, which means how do you start work before you start work, actually comes literally from a conversation and argument that we all had about <laughs> the fact that we were expected to come to work early to actually start work before we started work. Um, yeah. Um, but the, oh, how do we get here? The <laughs> boundaries, transformations. Yeah, transformations, um, breaking free. Um, I guess it was partially intentional in terms of my own interest in transformation and change and the fact that I, I think that works on multiple levels. Um, partially it was about the fact that Matt and I had both actually just broken free of a job that was on paper or like a dream job, like um, – and that we'd both been so excited and to be like, we're working in this amazing bookstore in this beautiful place. And, you know, um, all the people that worked there were amazing, except for this one dickhead boss um, yeah. who, who came on later, to be fair. If any of the other bosses that I'd had it, they were there. It's not you. It's the one that happened after it got bought by the company. Uh, the company had sold. Just in case they're listening. Yeah. They'd actually literally sold. the. Um, it was a flagship store, so it was owned by the whole business and then mm. they decided to sell it and so they sold it to some poor fool who didn't realize that there's no money in selling books and particularly when you've got a giant burn doggle store that takes up way too much square footage in the middle of brisbane um <laughs> and so they brought on this manager who had actually been working for like a super cheap auto or something before who was actually a business person and in doing so just did not get it at all in terms of the fact that you know you can't upsell books to people um, <laughs> you know, people come into a bookstore for two reasons. They either want to browse and buy nothing or they want to buy the book they were looking for and leave and try yeah. to get them to do more. And there's no overhead in books, which means that to actually make money, you've got to sell more than one book, which is why if you go into just about any bookstore um, that isn't good, you will have some poor person in there who's been told to greet you within the first minute ask if they can help with anything, but in an open way so that you're trapped in having a conversation with. And then from that, move into actually trying to attempt to find out what you like to laden you up with at least another book before you leave. So I what would... you're saying is Boy Girl War was all of the frustrations you had in the world, you just made them characters uh, in the... Write <laughs> what you know, right? Like, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it, was, it was a combination of those things, but I think it, it worked on the greater level about, around wanting to actually introduce transformation but but also in form and function, wanting to link those two things together of going, the way you present it has to actually talk to what you're presenting um, and the way you want to present things. Like I've always been more interested in um, form. So wanting to make a, a transformative weird show meant that the, the themes had to be transformative so that those two things met up mm. and like the Lego clicked right. Um, but also, look, there's a story I tell a lot um, and it, it is true. Um, when I was about 17, 18, um, and I graduated high school and I dropped out of uni for the first time of the many times that I did that, um, I was working, baking and decorating donuts uh, at, over at um, Aspley at the hypermarket and I would mm. walk home 
uh, to where I was living in Chermside. Uh, like, it was like a good 60 minute walk every day. And I would um, read and put my foot in the gutter and walk along the side of the road with my foot in the gutter so I could actually basically just take the the, the, the railway of where I was going oh my home. God. Trust me, oh. free. And one day I was particularly caught up in a book and I wasn't paying attention and I ran into a parked car and fell over. And um, I had an epiphany, which was that, you know, uh, personality, by and large, outside of genetics, which is unavoidable, personality is a construct and we are the agglutinative mass of all of the experiences that we've had and that therefore we can change. And um, kind of ever since then, everything I've wanted to talk about, everything I've ever done and, and the way I treat acting as a mm. transformational exercise and the way I treat theatre, which is as proselytizing for the idea of the fact that things can change and and what I believe politically, which is that, you know, all of this is possible if we change and if we're willing to work and change and if we're willing to actually do the work. Um, and recognizing that within that everybody has hurdles to doing those things um, and that we should be helping other people over their hurdles so that they can transform and become better people too happened. So I guess um, wanting to break free, wanting to improve, wanting to actually get past those things um, on, on, a, on, a, on a level of, of philosophical mm. understanding was there as well. I, I'd um, spent a lot of the late 90s reading a lot of kind of funky weird stuff on kind of um early christian gnosticism as well which is kind of a, around sure. the, the, the concepts of the demiurge being that you know there was a a, a, a a an offshoot cult that believed that the existence that we live in philosophically was actually created not by god but by a uh like a demigod who has made this kind of failed platform in which to live um and that a, a lot of philosophies from around that time play into those ideas of the fact that this is actually kind of like the palest reflection of something that could be ideal. Mm. Um, you know, Christianity actually lifts that into, you know, ideas around the fact that this is the tryout for something that's much better. Um, I find that problematic because it means that you don't bother this time because it's the tryout and you'll do better next time. Um, you know, Plato in the cave and the idea of the fact that we are what, only observing the shadows because we can't take the real thing, all of that mm. kind of, played into these ideas around wanting to actually look at um, reality and transformation and possibility and, and being better, I guess. Yeah. Um, so that's all sitting in there too, just finishly hidden behind what is a series of jokes. We're going to leave it there for today and we're going to pick up back again in part two where we discuss more of Boy Girl Wall. We're going to talk about the music, a little bit of the devising process and as all conversations with Lucas go, we're going to tangent to everything in between. Mm -hmm.